Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Hi, um, thank you all for coming. Um, it's been 20 years since I did a reading in LA, which was the time that I published my first book in 1997. And um, I'm always trying to get back. Um, and back in 1997, I kind of thought of me having a book published and reading from it was about um, just sort of an offering to people that they would be enlivened by this genius that I was visiting on them, that I had something to offer that they'd never seen before. Um, and now I recognize that like, when I go and give a reading in a bookstore, it's really an opportunity for a lot of people who I love a lot, who I've known for a long time in the early 80s in Utah or in college or as their professor um, to come and pay attention to me again. Um, and so I really appreciate that. Um, I'm just going to start reading, and I'm going to be talking also. Um, well, while I'm reading, it will sound like I'm talking, but I'll be reading things. But then between the pieces I'll read, I'm going to talk a little bit about the project. Um, and then there will be time for questions, so store them up, because I like to try to answer them. Um, and the talking, you know, it is hopefully going to be kind of inspiring, occasionally just obvious or impossible to understand. Um, so you might pick up some things. Oh, ex-girlfriends also um, show up on occasion. It's excellent. <laughs> I'm going to move around in the book. This is the first... Um, the first piece, though, it's called To Begin is to Start, and it was generated out of this photograph. An idea is not a thing you have. It cannot be possessed like that, like an envelope or a letter. A risk is a thing you take, and a decision is a thing you make. A decision is not so fragile, not so tenuous as a promise, though both are things you make, beginnings. Sometimes the invitation comes from another person or another animal, a bear or dog or ghost. Sometimes it comes from oneself. It does not matter if an invitation comes from without or arises from within. Be still, yet ready to strike. Poise, taut. A snake has more than 200 teeth pointed backward to zip you up, to bite and hold you securely. Security is always a misapprehension. You can slip away, you can take a risk. Be decisive. Power ceases in the instant of repose, and the inside of you never stops, your heart circling your blood around and around right now, 2,000 gallons in your lifetime. Wind blows in and out of you across the desert and mountains. It slams doors in the middle of the night, wakes you with a start. So one easy way to talk about this project is it's just um, an exercise in something we all do, I think, when, we're in, when we encounter a photograph and we don't have any context for it. We don't know who took it. We don't know where it's from, when it's from, who the people are in it. Um, we begin to wonder, uh, what is going on here? Um, who are these people? What might be happening? So I'm just going to share some of the photographs. Um, one great thing about 
writing as long as I've been writing is that you start to become aware of how it is that you generate information and I've started to realize looking back at my past projects that I'm not really a person who believes in inspiration per se but that I believe in reacting to things that I'm curious about so a lot of what I'm doing is bringing myself into proximity of things that I don't understand so my book my abandonment is about um, it's, it's generated out of my fascination with a newspaper story about a father and daughter and trying to figure out what had happened to them. Uh, my book, The Shelter Cycle, is about a church in Montana who believed the world would end in 1991. And, um, and, uh, and so recognizing that um, brought me around to this project, and I'll talk more about its inception. But those of you who have been students of mine know... Um, that I often will say very inspirational things like, you know, if there is something out there that you're curious about and you don't know why, you don't know anything about it, there's something inside you that is resonating with that thing. And so you need to go find it. Like, you need to go work on that and find out what's going to happen. So these are all photographs that pulled me in in some ways, and I tried to find out what was going on inside them. And I was, you know, hopefully startled by what came out of me in reaction. Generally speaking, um, there's one photograph per story. Some have a few more, two or three. Um, this story is called Four Chambers Has the Human Heart. And it really has one photograph. But I'm going to cheat a little bit because it's a story in four sections, so I'm going to shift photographs. You'll recognize which was the original photograph that this was generated from. Once there was a girl who couldn't sleep. Late at night, she pulled the skins from her bed, stepped over her sleeping sister, and left her hut. The sky was cold and black, punctured by stars. As the girl walked, she felt a knocking, as if someone was rapping on the soles of her feet from underneath the ground. She bent down and pressed her ear to the short, frozen grass. What she heard was a slow beating, perhaps a distant train. She held her breath. It had to be her heart, she decided, her own heart. Standing, she walked again. There were no trees in the night, nothing growing in any direction. Behind her, she could no longer see the fires of her village. She listened, she got down on her knees and pressed her ear to the ground once again. The heartbeat, she realized, was not her own. She decided to walk in the direction where it grew stronger. After a time, the girl was crossing a windswept plain. She approached a pile of rocks, round stones the size of a man's head, and as she began to walk around these rocks, a voice suddenly called out to her. Girl, stop for a moment. Talk to me. Listen. The stones were dark gray, the spaces between them quite black. The girl leaned close then and finally found a space where she could see a man's mouth. He seemed to be lying on his side, buried beneath all the heavy stones. Hello there, she said. Is that your heart I'm hearing? I would like to tell you a story, he said. You want me to help get you out, she said. This is where I belong, he said. I don't want you to get me out. His lips, framed by the sharp stones, were cracked and dark, his teeth chipped and jagged. Was it that you couldn't sleep, he said? Is that how you found me? I'm out walking, she said. In my village, everyone is asleep. Are you lonely, he said. The cold wind blew across the plain, whistled on all the edges of the stones. Are you a dead person, she said. The man in the pile of stones was silent for a moment, and then he spoke again. I found my wife in the garden, he said. 
where she'd been picking beans leaning over the plants. A snake leapt up and bit her in the neck. When I found her, her fingers were still tight around that snake just below his head. Both of them were dead, and on the ground was a half-full metal bowl of beans. Is that an answer to my question, the girl said. If a person isn't lonely, he said, would that person miss being lonely? Is this a riddle, she said. Have you ever felt, he said, that your rib cage had been scraped clean? I don't think so, she said. No, I have not. The hope in this situation is that the right letters can be put together. Letters fit together can become a word, which can become a key, a key that can unlock the lock on the heavy black metal door. When the lock is unlocked, when you step inside, a wind blows the door shut. The wind, it is a thick kind of wind. It holds you where you are and it buffets you, pulls at your clothing. The roots of your hair begin to sting. The chamber is so dark, so black, that you can't tell if your eyes are open and closed. And that wind blows so hard that it pulls shadows loose from bodies, slides them away, folds them into the darkness. You have no shadow now. It is somewhere else doing whatever it wants to do. As you stand there, the chamber seems to expand, wind circling, roaring around you. And then the space tightens, the air sucked away so that it's difficult to breathe, to catch your breath. Your chest is tight, a chamber inside this chamber. It is said that there are four chambers, that there are two ways in and two ways out, but with the wind blowing, you can't go out and indoor or in and outdoor. And in this darkness, it's impossible to guess how the other three chambers would ever be found. It is impossible to know if the key you use to access this chamber would also open those doors. The sound of a girl on a bicycle with no brakes, a long slithering all the way down a steep hill as she drags one foot along the pavement. Long ago, there was a man who walked across the land carrying a sack that was cinched tight. He never let anyone look inside it. But along came a huge ice bear who was very curious. What's in your sack, he asked the man. Nothing, the man said, just a big load of shit. Why are you carrying it around? Just in case, the man said, just in case I need it. This did not satisfy the ice bear, so he began to sing. His voice twisted and smoothed the air, and he sang the man to sleep. Once the man was asleep, the bear opened the sack. Out came the wind. It untangled itself, knocking the ice bear down, and sped away in every direction. It rolled the sleeping man along the ground quite a distance away until he woke up. He angrily went back to where the ice bear stood, holding the empty sack. Oh, traveler, the bear said, my cave is just beyond the pile of stones, and my wife is inside. You can have my wife for a full month if you'll only get rid of this wind. It's too late, the man said, hardly able to stay on his feet. Not even a full year with your wife would be enough. Wind has now entered the world. So like many of you, people who try to write, a big part of my process is procrastinating. And um, another thing I've learned is sort of trying to figure out how to use the ways that I procrastinate to generate material. So in retrospect, it seems like I was being really productive um, all along. And one way that I procrastinate is when I start getting close to the end of a project, I start looking around online at images and trying to find good 
photo images um, or cover images for the book. And what always happens is then I give it to the publisher and the publisher says, great, like we'll, we'll think about it. And then they even mock something up for me. And then at the last minute, they always change it. And they say, oh, well, Target didn't like it or it's too YA or something. And so the marketing people always change the cover. So I was looking around for photographs of a raccoon about six or seven years ago. And I found one and I wrote to the, photo, to the photographer and uh, I explained to him that this is what was going to happen, but I asked him if I could use it to kind of show the publisher what kind of image I thought would work. And he said, sure. And then a little later, um, he wrote and, um, and he said, you know, I would trade you a print of that photograph for a book of yours if you would send me a book. And I said, that is such a terrible trade for you, um, but I will do it right away. So I did, and um, I sent him a book, and he sent me, uh, it's much easier to tell this story now, I was reading in Oakland on Thursday, and he was there, and so it was really embarrassing, but the truth is, he, he sent me the the image, and then he sent me a whole bunch of snapshots he thought might interest me for some reason from his life. And then he wrote me a letter, which was about seven or eight pages, and some of it was typed, and some of it was printed, and it was the longest letter I think I got for so long. Um, and it was full of these huge questions. So there's kind of like, when did you know this is what you were supposed to do with your life? Or like, how do you know when something you're writing has gone wrong? And how have you reacted in the past? And it was kind of mixed in with these huge life questions. Like, how did you know your wife was the woman for you forever? And can you build a house with your hands? Would you like to? And, uh, and I thought, what a crazy letter. And I, you know, if it would have been someone I knew who wrote me the letter, I just would have been like, no. But... Um, <laughs> I thought it was a relatively good time for me, and I thought maybe it's a good moment for me to just set aside about 15 or 20 minutes and try to answer these questions. Um, and I was really writing to myself more than I was writing to him, but I wrote um, back, back to him. And um, one of the things I was writing about was, um, like, over 20 years ago, I lived in um, Ithaca, New York, because I was following my girlfriend at the time, um, who was going to graduate school there. And... Um, and a job that I had while I was there was working in the museum as a security guard. And it was a pretty good job, but people were always quitting. It was very boring. And it was before cell phones, I realized, which was part of the reason why it was so hard. But we um, weren't allowed to talk to people. We weren't allowed to sit down. And we weren't supposed to write anything. And so it was very lonely. And I passed the time by trying to make up stories um, based on the images that, that were in the museum, the paintings and the photographs and the sculptures. And I would try to hold as many many ideas as I could in my mind. And it was a museum where there were five floors and there were six guards. So when you were on your break, you'd be down in the break room, but then you'd go up to the fifth floor Asian art and everyone would go down every half hour, one floor. So I would carry the stub of pencil and I would furtively, on the fire stairs, you know, just scribble something down. Um, and by the time I got down on my break, I would have all of these things to think about and try to write them all down and by the time I went home at the end of the day I would have more stories. So I wrote to this photographer Peter McCullough um, and that first piece with the zipper, that first image was one of his um, and when I wrote it I thought that's exactly the kind of thing I need to do now um, and the reasons are many why I thought that one was um, I was teaching full time and I just didn't have time to work on my writing and I was starting to feel more and more like kind of a fraud and the last project I'd worked on had gotten to be over a thousand pages long and I knew when I was writing that I would go down to the basement and look at it and just shed a bitter tear and then go back upstairs. So I wanted to find something I could work on in increments. Um, 
I also realized that a lot of the things I've been writing were connected in various ways. Um, and not for like literary posterity or anything, just for my own sake. They're just intersections um, of the worlds of different books. And I sort of wanted to write something that was completely unrelated to anything I'd written before. And I've been thinking about it. I think sometimes I have students who are working on worlds and characters that they, that they created in junior high school. And it's 10 years later and they're still sort of working on that stuff. And I think that's so inspiring in one way. And then in another way, sort of the emotional maturity of that world is caught in junior high um, or the insights are kind of back there also. So I sort of felt like I was becoming a really different person and I wanted to write things that really confused me and mixed me up, um, which is part of what this project is about. So I wrote to Peter McCullough and I said, I'd like to do a project like this and I think maybe if I had five photographers that would help me. And so I had a list of photographers and he had a list of photographers and I wrote to the first five whose photographs I love the most and they were all down to do whatever it was I was doing. And so that sort of is how it started, but there were a number of rules and I was very controlling as a collaborator and I said, you know, I don't want to know anything about you. I don't want to know anything about these photographs. I, I don't want any information. And if you'd send me 25 or 30, I'm going to do something. I don't know what it is. Um, and some of them did send me 25 or 30 and some sent more like 100. And so it's very hard to figure out. And I tried to choose right away, which I thought five or six from each person would work but then I realized if I didn't really want to have any intention I didn't know which ones would work so I just chose five at a time one from each photographer and I wrote those pieces um, and as you, as you can see there's a pretty wide range of there are stories that are a little longer that are more like narratives there are these folktale like pieces there are these kind of rants um, there's an essay about elephants written by a fourth grader um, there's a lot of different pieces there's 31 stories and there are 43 images and they do cohere into a larger story um, that's going to be hard to understand based on the pieces that I'm reading tonight but it's um, a story about three friends who are just out of high school, two young women and a young man. And if you've ever been in a situation like that with two other friends, you recognize that the same people are never attracted to each other. And so it sort of is about um, the energies between them or the things that they're figuring out. And the one... Um, the one young woman, her grandmother has just died, so that's a big part of the story. And I'll talk a little more as I shift um, directions about those three. If a person is about to touch you, if a person is about to touch you, you can already feel it. If you're about to meet someone, your body may already know it, a tremor in your organs. If a hand hovers over your bare skin, you can sense its presence. That's the simple, invisible way a hand can convey its intentions, which are, after all, a kind of thinking. Hands have brains and hearts, every finger does. This can be proved by the delay of the time it takes to understand what our hands have done and why. Hands. They are the vehicles of intuition. When I am beset by emotion, when I think of something, that's when I ask my hands for assistance. And then when my hands suddenly do something, that is the time for me to react. They're out in front of me. They're always, almost always in front of me, in my field of vision, the part of myself that I know best. When I see my face in a mirror, I am often startled or disappointed. My hands would never surprise me like that. I recognize them reaching out to you. 
So this book is a collaboration um, with these five photographers, and it's a, it's a collaboration also. I've been thinking a lot about um, this idea that people who write write by themselves, and it's, it is something I do by myself, but it's so false to think that anything I've ever done wasn't based on a lot of other things, a lot of other people who helped me, a lot of um, other things that I read. So even looking at things I've already read, I say, like, in that first piece I read, there's a line from Ralph Waldo Emerson, um, Power Ceases in the Instant of Repose. Um, there's something John Cage says about invitations from oneself. Um, in that second piece, that tale about the wind is sort of ripping off an Inuit tale of, of how the wind came to exist. Um, so there are all kinds of little things like that. Um, and I think there are also you know, ways that people help us are so um, hard to gauge at the time, um, and later on they become clear. I'm going to change um, this meditation, and um, it's a it's a book that has I, I want to say I'll say more about this, but a lot of coincidences in the images the photographers gave me. So there's a, just a whole lot of bears, there's a whole lot of dogs, and there's a whole lot of snakes. Um, those are those are things that come up again and again. Um, and I haven't read this one for a while, but I thought I would do it today. Um, this is called "A Snake's Tongue Is Forked." Everyone's heard of a hoop snake. It takes its tail in its mouth and rolls like a hoop, like a wheel, chasing a person or child or animal. It has a stinger on its tail, and if the snake rolls into a tree, if the stinger gets stuck in a tree, that tree will die. She might have seen one, a hoop snake might say she has. Tonight she's in the bedroom where no one sleeps anymore, where the furniture is gone and the window is dirty and the flowered wallpaper is cracked. What brought her here into this room where her grandmother died, here in the night with her face pressed against the wall? She followed a crack in the basement floor where it bent and forked along the wall next to the stairs, across the door frame, across the kitchen tiles. It is a line, a map, a piece of string to follow, wound tight around the house, squeezing all the time and the people in the rooms in those times, all the conversations and misunderstandings. A crack is a snake. A snake is a line, a forking line. Is a snake's tongue forked? A snake's tongue is forked. The roses in the wallpaper, the carnations, the vines cut in two by the cracks so they should fall, but they do not fall. She leans close, her nose almost touching, her eyelashes brushing the wall. Pay attention. There are other layers. Old paper, the choices of other people, the smell of old paste that would go to powder if she took hold of the crack and tore it open, spilling the snake all lengthwise. If you sneak up behind a rattlesnake and take it by the tail, crack it like a whip, you can snap the head clean off its body. What if the head flipped back and bit you in the hand or neck or face, if there was still venom in its fangs? There's a difference between poisonous and venomous. You should know it, should learn it. Heads without bodies are more dangerous, somehow more desperate and unpredictable, not moving in any way that is a pleasure to see, never saying anything you want to hear. She is intent, not losing her way, following each fork, doubling back. In the window behind her, a black dog could be running up the street, a full moon hanging like a head. A human head could float past, faintly smiling behind the glass. A snake cannot move on a sheet of glass. A snake on ice is useless. Snakes are shy creatures, and we are only beginning to find out more about how they live. A bird or a mammal... These are animals that can learn from experience. Snakes are deaf and have no eyelids and cannot learn like this. Once she saw a snake's head loose in the garden, its long body divided into five pieces by the blade of a mower. 
Joint snakes, if you hit one, it breaks up into pieces as long as your finger. A bull snake blows like a bull when it gets riled. A coach whip snake has a braided tail. A bull snake, oh, it'll wrap around a person or animal and whip with its plated tail until that person or child or animal has run themselves to death. She moves slowly, carefully. She is halfway through the house. She wonders if the crack is circular, if it will connect to itself like a hoop snake, or if it will never end. A snake will not stop growing because its enclosure is small. That is a myth. She believes all sorts of things. She is willing. She will follow anything that pulls her attention. This wallpaper is flocked in vertical strips, the white flowers pressing up through the gray, the foliage, leaves holding the cool shadows below, the space where a snake can sleep or hide or be discovered, where it might slip into the open, peek its head out from under, its red tongue keeping time. Remember the joint snake all broken up, left behind in the yard? If you don't bury the head, if you leave it out with the rest, it will search for the other pieces, sniffing here and there with its tongue jerking in and out. By morning, that snake will be whole again. So, um, other coincidences that became really important in the book is um, there's a huge number of decapitations in the photographs that I got. Um, and so, um, the idea of a body being without a head or a head being cut loose from a body um, is kind of central to a lot of the storytelling. And, um, and so, that was, that was something that became an interesting challenge to see how I could make that work or react in a way that made sense. Um, and I think also it's, it's probably important to say that it's, it's kind of a project where I, I was reacting to something I saw in people who were reading my work. When there was something that happened that was fantastic, they would say, is this a dream? Or like, where's the dream? Or where's the ground? And I sort of wanted to write a book where what was literal and what was figurative were the same. Um, where shadows could exist without bodies, um, where dream could exist without dreamers, where being alive or being dead was something that was um, harder to tell um, if, if those two things were related or how they worked. And a real problem that arose as I started to realize that things were connected in various ways and that I had characters that were going to recur is that I didn't have photographs of the same people over and over again. So the way that the characters in the story look changes a lot from piece to piece. And so I had to account for why they were being transformed um, as I was writing. And one of the big catalysts for the, for the story is that these three friends... Um, there's an old man named Oscar, and Oscar has a dream of this girl, um, and after he dreams about her a few days later, he sees her on the street, and he's never seen her before, and so he's trying to figure out why, so he begins to kind of stalk her, and she is one of the three friends that I mentioned before, and uh, he becomes a very important character. Oh, there's a lot of bears, as I said. There's just a couple of bear photos. I won't read these stories. So the first time that um, Oscar appears, he looks like this, and he's he's run into these um, pigeons that have uh, messages attached to them, and he starts communicating with someone he doesn't know who, and that draws him further in, into his story. Um, a little bit later on um, in the book, he looks like this. 
and he's gone through this transformation. And then from about the middle of the book until the end, uh, he looks like this. Um, I'm going to read, I think, two more pieces in case you're wondering. Um, And this one, uh, this is uh, one of Oscar's stories. It's called Hello. When you see me, then you'll know things are about to become interesting. I'm lighthearted, but I don't fool around. Sometimes I greet a visitor by saying, hello, I'm dreaming, which is a compliment and then at the same time a kind of fact. I can become like anyone overcome by tenderness. Help me. Don't be afraid. My eyes were so hazy and then they got better and then turned worse again. I live in hope as I wander in shadows. I wear eyeglasses. I wear a white undershirt for four days before I wash it. I wear the shirt frontward, backward, then inside out in both directions. On the fourth day, you can see the tag here beneath my beard like a little white tongue with writing on it. M. I'm a medium-sized man requesting your assistance. If I were to tell you that I'm a dead man with this long gray beard walking around on these bandy-ass legs, would that change anything? An old person telling a story of when they were young. Even when it's interesting, it can be a little difficult to believe. Or, more plainly, such stories are unbelievable, to the listener, to the teller. There are stories in my mind that I suspect arrive from somewhere else, not my past. Does it matter? Listen. I have images in my mind I don't recognize. I see people in my photographs who might be me. Can I attach myself to a story, project myself into a picture? Is there a difference if I believe it? I believe everything. I am certain of nothing. I'll be delighted to see you coming. Hello, I'm dreaming. Take, for instance, this photograph here. A man wearing nothing but boots, backward on a spotted horse, lying flat, his dark mustache near the horse's tail. Are they moving? There's snow everywhere, a thicket of trees. That man might be me. Am I being punished or am I playing around? I've always been lighthearted. I've always delighted in the weather. I like to think of myself, this adventurer. I'm the kind of person who wouldn't ask for help until the last moment. Listen to me. I'm somewhere between a person like you and the dead person I said I was. Or I am dead and still talking. Unbelievable. It frustrates me when you anxious people insist that a story or dream, a ghost or a memory must arise from, must be grounded in a person, a place, a time. Do you honestly believe one must come before the other? Look at me. Things like that can't flow in any one direction. One thing I couldn't quite get to work um, technologically was to get the videos to work. So, um, as Anya mentioned, um, and I guess I'll just digress a little more and say that um, people can be so helpful and so generous. Um, I was thinking about this project and working a little bit on it, and maybe six years ago or so, um, I had a conversation with a writer I really admire, Andrea Barrett, and... um, she said, you know, are you applying for that Guggenheim Fellowship? And I said, never again. Like, I, like I've applied for that 
five times in the last 20 years, and the last time I applied, I had the sexiest proposal of all time, and I had the best people writing for me, and they, they blew it. Like, that was it. Like, I'm not, I moved on. And she said, you know, the hardest thing about applying for that is getting people to write you letters. And we already wrote you letters. Like, could you just sit down this afternoon for an hour and just make a proposal of whatever it is that you're doing? And I said, well, it's kind of a collaboration. I don't think it'll work. Um, and so she... Um, convinced me and, and somehow I got this fellowship and it caused this thing I've been doing in my basement trying to work on my writing to surface in a way um, where you know my agent and my publishers and stuff were like what what are you doing like why are you doing this um, and then this gallery contacted me and it became a gallery show which is really beautiful to see for me especially to be surrounded by all the photographs at once um, and various people got involved and they recorded them all um, I didn't read them. A woman who's much better than I am read them. And they also made 13 different videos um, where this genius, Matt Eller, who also designed the book, um, it's very kind of slow motion, strange, trying to animate things that are still. Um, but I recommend um, checking those out if you're interested. I have a whole bunch of these little cards, but basically if you go to spellsproject.com, you can see some of this stuff. This is the last piece I'll read, and then I'll take some questions if people have them. Um, this is called The Daughter and the Dog. There was once a large black dog who was owned by a family with one small daughter. This gentle dog was a companion to the family for many years. His wagging tail slapped the kitchen cabinets. His fierce barking persuaded strangers not to linger. As the dog slept, the small daughter often slept with her head resting on his ribs. She knew well his gentle snoring, his leg twitches, the rise and fall of his body. One day, the family looked out into the yard and saw the dog sleeping in the shadow of a tree. Later in the day, he still not moved. When the daughter went outside, she saw flies on the dog's coat and the dog not lifting his head to snap at them. The father in the family was a carpenter and he built the dog a wooden coffin. He dug a square grave in the yard as the daughter stood and watched. A neighbor girl from the village wandered over to see what was happening, then went to look at the dog, who still waited beneath the tree. A wool blanket rested on top of him, and when the girl lifted its edge to see, the daughter told her to go away. The daughter was very young and still learning to speak. She had a few words, but knew how to communicate to make herself understood. As her father moved the dog's stiff body and fitted into the wooden coffin, the daughter refused to let him attach the coffin's lid. He tried to do it as he planned, as you would expect him to, but she would not allow it. In the end, the, the father had to do as she wished. He did not put the lid on the coffin. He set the dog in on its back, all four legs sticking up as the dirt was shoveled in. The daughter in this story is a friend of mine, and that's how I know it's true. The first time she told it to me, I didn't believe her, even though she had said she hadn't made it up. And every time over the years, and as I got to know her better, every time I asked her, the story came out exactly the same. My friend, the daughter. After the dog was buried, the daughter became quite ill. She had a terrible cough and wouldn't eat. Worst of all, she could no longer speak. It wasn't so much that she lost her voice, she told me, as she had lost her words. In any case, the family tried to keep the daughter in bed, but sometimes they found her in the yard, standing next to her, walking circles around the dog's grave. When they did, they brought her quickly back inside. One day, the daughter leaned down and brushed the loose dirt from the grave with her small, flat hands. 
Carefully, she uncovered the bottom of the dog's paws. The pads were rough, worn down, yet they were not as cold or stiff as she had expected. The next day, the family was eating breakfast together in the kitchen. Out the window, the father noticed that the grave was disturbed, the dirt scattered, the earth caved in. The dog stood in the yard, shaking dirt from his coat as if it were water, and he'd been swimming, not buried underground. He moved stiffly so strangely that the family did not approach him right away. He kept blinking his eyes, trying to get the dirt out of them, snapping his jaws, shaking his head. At last, the daughter stepped closer to him. She licked her finger and cleared his eyes so that he could see. After he surfaced, the dog no longer responded to his name. In fact, he seemed to be deaf. Also, he had lost his voice and made no sound at all. His knees didn't bend, and he lurched stiffly around the yard. He seemed he would tip over, but he never did. He never lay down. He never ate or drank that anyone saw, nor did he urinate or defecate. He was as unlike a dog as a dog could be. However, the dog's reappearance seemed to heal the daughter. In fact, she began to speak like a much older person, using long words and saying things that the members of her family could not understand. She spoke of sea journeys and lands of ice, animals swimming in the depths far below the surface, all manner of experiences she could never have lived. Sometimes the daughter stood in the yard for hours, talking and talking, and the dog stood listening, silent and unsteady, his muzzle grayer than anyone could remember. A week after he'd climbed from his grave, the dog died again, found in the same place in the shadows under the tree. He stayed dead the second time, and as soon as he was gone, the daughter lost all her new words. She did not become ill again, only went back to speaking as a young girl, as she had before. It was only much later, when she learned complicated words in school and felt their familiar shapes in her mouth, that she was reminded of her childhood illness. So thank you all very much again for coming. Um, I'm happy to try to answer questions if people have them. Um, many of you have... Yeah, Roshan. I kind of always wanted to be its own thing and I wanted it to be really fragmentary also and I was sort of not surprised but a little disappointed when I got to around the 13th or 14th story and recognized that things were coming back or that the characters were going to continue um, but there, it's also maybe interesting that I got to about 35 stories and I thought if I just had about another 10, I could make it all so coherent. And so I, it's the only time I asked the photographers for specific images that I'd seen online. And they sent them to me, and I wrote about another 10 pieces until so I had about 50. And then I spent about two months thinking about it, and I thought, actually, I didn't need more pieces. I needed fewer pieces. So I took all of those out and some other ones out and brought it together. So... Um, and some of them, you know, are six or seven pages long, but um, as I went on, things became a little bit more abstract, um, and, and I was trying to write things that were shorter. I think, too, um, something I didn't say before is that, as you know, you know, I teach all the time, and a lot of what I teach is short stories. And over the last 10 or 15 years, I recognized that um, 
I'd stopped writing short stories for a lot of reasons, and one was that I talk about them all the time, and that I'm very self-conscious when I write stories about things I've said about stories, and um, I need to be really confused to write well. So I wanted to write a kind of story that I hadn't written before, that I kind of hadn't seen before, which, you know, maybe you could say in a more subtle way about things I'd written in the past, but um, I kind of wanted to make a break, and I kind of wanted to make a break after this, too. I felt like this was a time when... um, I just needed to do something that was so hopefully like incredibly fun, which it was, but also violently different. So I think the things I've written since I wrote this are so different than things I would ever write before it that it was a really good moment. Yes? What kind of work do you want a reader to bring to it? Um, What kind of work do I want a reader to bring to it? Um, I think just... um, like work is such a hard word because I think that the things I write are not necessarily always considered easy. Like I don't explain everything, um, but I I hate to think that a writer w- that a reader would be really anxious about it or trying to make sense of it. I would want a reader just to have fun. Um, and like I'm getting older all the time, every day, a little bit older, and I feel like I used to read things that I didn't like because I thought I should read them, but I don't do that anymore. And so I feel like that's this even this book which I love and which I encourage everyone to read. I would say, you know, if you're reading a piece and you don't like it, there's another piece that's going to be really different that's coming. So I guess I want a a kind of patience and generosity, but also um, an impatience, too, from a reader. Um, And I want them to, you know, not have expectations, but to just go in and see what happens. Um, And I think one great thing about the gallery show to me was that people could just, you could stream the stories, but you could look at the images on your own, and and sort of, I was always thinking if the book could happen in a way, and I think, you know, who knows if people actually read this book, but I think people I see people all the time flipping through it and looking at the pictures, and then putting it down and I think, you know, that's kind of a hope of mine too that people look at the images and think their own story, you know, think what is happening here, and then think, well, what did this person come up with out of that? And so yeah, I guess that's what I would ask. Yes? Can you explain a little bit more about what you meant you said I think you're a Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of comes back to anxiety a little bit. I recognize that the places where my writing is bad and the places where my students' writing is bad is all about anxiety, that we when we get anxious about something when we're writing it we generally turn to something we've seen before or something we've done before and it's very similar to how it is if you're an anxious person or if you come across a person who's anxious you can't like our tendency often is to just grab them and say like be more confident man and that just makes people afraid and the only way people become more confident in their life is by making mistakes and getting through things and I think one thing about staying at writing it's made me more comfortable in having things fall apart again and again and staying with it. So a lot of things that I've written more recently, I think in the past I wouldn't have known what to do and I would have run away from them. And so I think, you know, having kids, like being in a relationship for 20 years, um, I've learned things that I didn't know before. And one is that, you know, usually if I can sit with something, I'll eventually figure out a way to make it work, but that I can't always move that quickly and I've got to become just more comfortable in in a kind of chaos. Um, That when I know what I'm doing, when I know what my intention is for a piece, that's doom. Uh, Yes, Anya. Two questions. All right. What's the deal with copper? It's one of the intersections that you mentioned in the last book. Uh-huh. 
copper. I don't know, I don't understand the things that I write really, but I think um, in specific cases, you know, it conducts electricity and I became really interested in electricity, which if we travel back through my work life, I spent a lot of time working on ranches and stringing electric fence and I shocked myself a lot. So I started writing about it and I started writing about electrocution and I started thinking about copper, but also I'm from Salt Lake City um, where there's a huge copper mine. So that's probably part of it too. Um, but I don't really know. Okay. Yeah. Second question is, do you ever read your old work? Do I ever read my old work? Um, not really. I mean, it's definitely written by another person. I was reading a great book um, by Yi Yun Lee um, the other day, which I, I'll probably mess up her title, which is a title from, um, from Catherine Mansfield, I think, um, which is Dear Friend, From My Life I Write to You in your life um, and she says that as soon as something's written it's posthumous that, um, that it's, it no longer belongs to you and uh, she was also in Oakland so we were talking about this but she also says in that same part of the book that a, a writer should never meet the reader um, and, and that goes implicitly in the work but also it's unfortunate that we're all here now um, but, but I'm happy that we're here also um, so it's written by another person, and it's interesting. And when people praise something I wrote before, it's always a little bit sweet and frustrating. Um, and, and sort of, I have this kind of classic rock feeling. Like my, my book, My Abandonment, has probably you know, sold so many more copies than any of my other books. And now they're wrapping the movie today. And people always want to talk to me about it. And I love that book, but I wrote it a long time ago. And so that's kind of odd. Um, a little while ago, my book, The Unsettling, that collection of stories, was selected to be reprinted because Brian Evanson chose it, who's right there, a genius. Um, and not, but actually, it's not related. His genius is not all related to him choosing my book. It's, it's separate from that. Um, but I did a couple readings from the book then, and I kind of remembered the stories, and I'm proud of them, um, and they range over a long period of time. And I was trying to make it interesting, and I was reading in Portland, and I read a story called Peregrine Falcon, where it's this kind of deranged first-person um, narrator, and it does arise from a real story that happened in my life. Like one time there was this, the phone rang, and I picked up the phone, and this person shouted at me, stop fucking my sister. And I was like, and I thought, is this my brother-in-law? Like, what? Like, but, um, and then a little while later, the phone rang again, and it was this woman saying, I'm sorry, that was my younger brother. It's like, and so the story kind of arose from that. But when I decided to read in the story, I decided to make it exciting at the reading. I said, this is, I'm not a very autobiographical writer, but this story is all true. And so I started to read it, and I got into the middle of the story, and I turned a page, and I saw that there was like this frottage section where the, where the narrator came up behind this woman at a show and started rubbing himself against her. And I just started blushing and sweating. And I had to say, like, I forgot what happens in the story completely. And I don't, um, and, and it's not true. Like, this part is not true, much as I would. So um, I look at it sometimes, you know, and there's a lot of scratch paper in my house that's old projects, and, and my daughters will read stuff and just be, like, unsparing in their critique of, of what's going on. I'm sorry, you had a question back there? Yes. Mm-hmm. It's sort of, I mean, it, it's 
like I have all these good anecdotes and it makes me seem like I know what I'm doing but honestly like where stories come from and how we work with them is something that is so mysterious and intuitive that it's kind of funny to even be a teacher of writing because you're trying to encourage people to surprise themselves um, I think I mean, one simple thing that it's not that simple, but that I've learned in writing things that are connected to each other. Like one time I wrote a novel called The Bewildered, and then I wrote a novel which was about um, a man who was trying to become feral. And then I wrote My Abandonment, and those stories all connected in a way. But that middle novel... I finished, I finished it at the same time as my abandonment, and I sent it off to my agent, and it took him a long time to read those two books, and he liked both of them, and I was sure that my abandonment was just kind of a side piece that I was playing with, but in the time it took him to read them, I kind of changed my mind, and the reason was that I recognized that this other book spent a lot of time making connections between the, the other its siblings, it didn't really have its own obsession in the same way. And so I think if things are going to be connected to each other, they shouldn't know it. Um, they should be focused inward. And so a lot of times when I'm writing, I'm trying to write from inside things. And, assume, and editing is a much more intellectual thing. Editing can be, you know, when you finally step outside and say, okay, well, how is this all working exactly? Um, but it's dangerous to try to connect things too much um, for me. Um, so and it kind of takes the fun out of it. Like, I'm not a big explainer, as I said before. Um, I just kind of want the pieces to stand on their own as best as possible. What motivated you to think that you needed more? Um, again, maybe just anxiety, lack of confidence, um, fear of... Um, I mean, it would be great to say that every time in my life I've thought, you know, oh, this is too insane. I've got to do something to rein it in. I was actually wrong, and that was how it... Just, like, often I, it just doesn't make sense at all. So it was a time when um, I think I was just not feeling secure enough about the project. I hadn't quite figured out what its heart was or how it moved. Yeah. Yeah. Yes? Who, who have you read where their work shook you and said, oh, you can do this with a story? Hmm... I think, um, like, probably my favorite book of stories, and, and it echoes with this book a little bit, is Kawabata's Palm of the Hand stories, um, where those stories are all very short and written over the course of his life, and, and so amazing at suggesting things without stating it and working with shadows of various kinds. Um, I think, um, like, Diane Williams is, is a writer who writes things that are incredibly short, where the sentence becomes so torqued and strange. Um, and I admit that I don't understand about 90% of the things that she writes, but I'm so moved by her sentences um, that, um, that, you know, it just, I'd say, like, there are ways, say, I wouldn't, I, I would say this if Brian weren't here, but Brian Evanson's work too is, is scary to me. Um, and he also has this sort of Utah connection. So, um, in a world where, um, there are a lot of invisible forces, which is the world we're living in now, but I think it's more apparent in Utah than in other places and you feel it in different ways. And I've been writing, um, 
um, my book, The Shelter Cycle, which is about this in many ways. And I realized that for me to write something, and I tell my students sometimes, like, if you're going to write about dreams or you're going to write about drugs, you're going to have to bring it down. Like, it's got to be really concrete. And our first impulse often is just really cook the language and to make it really lyrical. But it backfires. It's already a dream, or the person is already on drugs. You've got to bring it down in some way. And so with that book, the writing is, I hope, I hope it's good, but it's pretty flat. I mean, it's, it's not a book that's very lyrical. And so in some ways, this also is a reaction to that. I just wanted to write in voices that, were, that pushed the language a little more in ways that would embarrass me a lot of the time as a writer who wanted to be subtle. Um, and so I think some of the people that, that I really admire um, are not afraid to be unsubtle. Um, to to really push things a, a little bit further, and they're not afraid to confuse people either, which I like. I just want to follow up on that. Mm-hmm. So you talk about the Utah writers, mm-hmm. and I, I want to see how you look at Western writing. Do you right. see schools, Seattle, do you see Portland? Do you, what do you see in terms of, because it seems like the most interesting writing is coming out of the West right now, the most interesting language experiments mm. coming out of the West. Huh. Do you see it as more of an individual game, or do you see it as a as a dialogue, as a riffing between certain? I don't know. I don't know if I'm qualified to talk about that exactly. Um, there are a lot of writers I know who live in the West um, because I live in the West, who I think are amazing. There are people other places. Um, I guess. I mean, I always. There's a way in which I can talk about myself as sort of a self, self-styled desperado who has no kin, um, which is kind of how I feel. But part of it, too, is like I have so much going on that I, like when I was in my 20s, I went to a lot of readings. I hung out with a lot of people who were writing, and I was curious about that as a community. But I, I, I'm not interested in hearing people talk about writing that much. Um, I'm interested in talking about other things with other people. Um, so some of the writers I've talked about, I think, are, are amazing um, but I think that I'm not that conscious a lot of the time of, of what the connections are between people, and there are certainly stories um, of specific writers that I think are amazing, and I don't like the rest of their work. And it's sort of, um, I, one time I had a student when I asked about her favorite writer, she said, I have favorite stories. I don't have favorite writers, and I kind of feel that way. One more hard question. No. Okay, Anya, yes. How's your writing changed since you became a dad? Mm, how's my writing changed since I became a dad? Uh, yeah, I mean, my girls are always pulling things out. I, like, the last book I published was ostensibly a young adult book, and I was trying to write it for them, but because I wrote it, it just is too scary. But they know that it's dedicated to them, and they're always pulling it out and saying, why is this girl wearing only a jog bra? Like, why would you write that? What, what's the matter with you? Um, but honestly, I think, um, and I don't want to make it sound like you have to have a kid to have this kind of thought, because you don't, but it made me grow up in a lot of ways. And so when I wrote My Abandonment, I was racing um, the birth of my first daughter, and that book is about a father and daughter. And when I look at it now, I say, oh, that's my, like, I was so worried about what kind of advice you would give to a daughter, how you'd be a father, how do I do that? And then once I had kids for a while, they started asking me impossible cosmic questions, and I realized I have no answers for this. Like, my mystical upbringing is all in opposition to Mormonism. Like, it's all negative. Like, how can it... So, like, working on the shelter cycle opened me up to all kinds of things. Not that I have answers for things, but I think, you know, that my daughters force me in all kinds of ways try to be um, 
a better person. And, and I think that they also made me realize that a lot of my ideas about being a writer were not that interesting to me anymore. And so um, like I don't think about writing or being a writer as an identity in the way that I did before as a calling or as a destiny. I think you know, I've just been working hard on like, can I be a person who likes to write? Um, being, being a person is much harder. Um, and so that is um, a thing, again, that it's like kids are not necessary for that. But for me, that was a big step. Thanks so much, everyone. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.